0: Today, on Something You Should Know, next time you get a cough, something in your kitchen has been proven to help more than any over-the-counter medicine. Then, bugs, insects, you depend on them more than you know.
1: Insects are in everything we think of, we're eating them, they're on our bodies, and in fact, insects may, and this may be gut churning for some of your listeners, but may be the future of the world's food supply.
0: Also, how to get that last little bit out of the jar or tube, and whether or not it's even worth it. And why having everything isn't all it's cracked up to be. In fact, too much success can be hard to live with. Well, there's a fragility that happens. You know, failure
2: is different than success, because in failure, we can constantly live in hope. When we live in a place of extraordinary success, we live in constant fear that we're going to
0: fall off our perch. Hey, welcome to Something You Should Know. As I sit here recording this today, it is 108 degrees outside my window. And there's just, there's something about this kind of heat that just makes you want to do nothing. But the show must go on, and today's episode starts with some advice for the next time you get a cold or a cough. Try honey. New research shows that honey is more effective at treating cough and cold than antibiotics or over-the-counter medication. Experts at Oxford University said doctors are better off telling patients to have a spoonful of honey rather than prescribing antibiotics. Overall, honey was found to be superior at relieving coughs, sore throat, and congestion. And unlike other medications, it has no harmful side effects. Specifically, honey on average was 36% more effective at reducing cough frequency than common medications, and it cut cough severity by 44% more. The reason it works is apparently because, well, first of all, it contains hydrogen peroxide, which gives it antimicrobial properties, and it's because of that that it's been used in traditional medicine as a topical antibiotic for centuries. And secondly, because it is thick and sticky, honey has a soothing effect on the throat that can reduce irritation and help relieve a dry, tickly cough. And you don't have to eat it straight if you don't like the taste of just eating pure honey. Even putting it in tea helps. And that is something you should know. You don't have to go far to find insects. They're everywhere. And you probably think of them more as pests than anything else. But insects actually do a lot of wonderful and amazing things. In fact, your life would be very hard without some of these insects. Insects are also a food source. There's a good chance you've eaten an insect recently, or parts of one, or the secretions of one. (laughs) And yeah, that sounds kind of gross, but... Insects are important in many ways and becoming more important. Here to explain is Edward Melillo. He's a professor of history and environmental studies at Amherst College, and he's author of the book The Butterfly Effect, Insects and the Making of the Modern World. Hi, Professor. Thanks for having me. So when I think of insects, just generally think about them, I don't think of them as being a big help, <laughs> a big, uh, helping humanity and helping the world at all.
1: When we think of insects, we think of problems that they cause. We think of diseases, Zika, West Nile virus, yellow fever, malaria, dengue fever, that have been the scourges of, of humans throughout world history. Um, and we think of insects plaguing crops the world's farmers spend something on the order of $16 billion annually on insecticides. And so that's the traditional view of insects. But I began investigating the other side of the story and wanted to tell that tale, which is that essentially insects are in everything we think of as resolutely modern. Um, In fact, we're eating them. They're on our bodies Um, Most genetic science is totally dependent on studies done on the fruit fly. Pollination is a major contribution that insects make to our daily lives, something like one in every three bites of food that the average human takes comes from a plant that was actually pollinated by an insect. Uh, And in fact, insects may, and this may be gut-churning for some of your listeners, but may be the future of the world's food supply.
0: Ooh, yum. Sounds tasty. So, uh, the definition of an insect is what?
1: An insect has six things that you want to think about when you're thinking about what is an insect. Well, first, it has a three-part body. It's got a head, a thorax, and an exoskeleton. The skeleton on an insect is on the outside. That exoskeleton is usually semi-transparent. Light can shine through it. Um, Thirdly... And all insects have three pairs of jointed legs, so everything with six legs is an insect. So the spider you see crawling around your bathroom um, is not an insect. It's an arachnid, but insects all have six legs. They've all got antennae. That's the fourth thing. They all have compound eyes made up of multiple facets, kind of like a gem, Um, which is a great advantage when you're either pursuing prey or running from predators because you can see almost 360 degrees around you. Uh, And all insects have two pairs of wings. Um, And so that's what makes an insect an insect.
0: When you look at all the different varieties of insects, are you able to say they all have a purpose I mean, sure, I'm sure everyone has sat around and been you know, bitten by a mosquito and thought, why do we even <laughs> have them? What, why are they here? What purpose do they serve? And I wonder, do, do they all have a function and a purpose for the world, or are they often just pests?
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of them have, have purposes and functions that kind of go unannounced that we don't see all the time, because insects have a way of not only hiding under the trash can and behind the fridge, but a lot of what they do is underground, in the grass, and out of sight. And many insects that we might think of as not having any purpose, so to speak, are doing really important things, like they're breaking down organic matter. We call that decay, which is really vital to the way that the world functions, because if you can't break down organic matter and return those nutrients to the soil then everything stops. Farming uh, is impossible, and most ecosystems can't survive. So a lot of the times the things that insects do are are out of sight. Some beetles are involved in, as are flies, in breaking down the dead bodies of, of creatures after they die in the wilderness. And other insects are doing all sorts of things that we don't think about on a day-to-day basis, but they're producing components of our food system. And they're in everything, ubiquitous day-to-day products like uh, nail polish and hairspray and uh, insect secretions used to be on the floors of bowling alleys and 78 RPM records were made out of an insect secretion and uh, people dyed their clothes with insects. So it's sort of it's sort of a tale of all the things that insects are doing that are unannounced that we don't think about on a daily basis. So I guess to sort of sum it up to answer your question, yes, a lot of insects have purposes for the functioning of the world that we never see, remark upon, or think about.
0: Bees are insects, right?
1: Yes, bees are insects, and, and without them we'd be in, in real trouble, I actually... Um, have done a lot of thinking about how important bees are to the almond crop in California, which is of course absolutely massive and um, it depends on on billions of bees pollinating it every year. And they're actually shipped in um, in crates from from long distances away on trucks every year in the fall to pollinate California's massive almond crop, which is actually the United States' seventh largest agricultural export. And without those bee pollinators, um, you know, these millions of almond trees would not be able to produce a single nut. Um, so when you're, when you're on an airplane next time and you're opening that little bag of almonds, you might think about the fact that there was an insect involved, in it's, its coming to fruition quite literally,
2: so...
0: There's been talk, I've certainly read and heard things about in the, the uh, concern about bees disappearing. What, what is that about?
1: The big picture story is that upwards of 40% of insect species are in decline and about a third are endangered globally. Um, and in the specific case of bees, we're talking about colony collapse disorder, which is a phenomenon identified first in 2007. Um, and it's, it's shown up in terms of the massive declines in numbers in many hives that apiaries and beekeepers keep for pollinating um, flowering crops around the world. and. There are A couple possible causes of this. The science is not conclusive yet, but one of them is a parasitic mite with the great name Varroa destructor. Sounds like a creature out of a science fiction film, Um, but it actually sucks out the hemolymph from bees, which is like their blood, and ends up killing um, bees in their hive. But then the other big culprit seems to be a class of pesticides that are called neonicotinoids or neonics for short. And what these pesticides do, these insecticides to be specific, is they they kill insects to protect plants of farmers' crops, but they also seem to be destroying the beneficial ones as well. Um, And there are compounds that mimic nicotine, of course, comes from tobacco, uh, but they seem to be really destructive for bee populations. And one of our real concerns is that you know, without this essential pollinator we 're going to be in real trouble trying to produce food from flowering plants in the future. Um, most pollinators are bees there 's some twenty thousand species of wild bees, but we depend upon domesticated bees uh, to do all this work, and without them we 'd be in real trouble
0: so bugs are figuratively on the table, insects to be exact, on the table for discussion and i 'm talking with Edward Melillo. He's a professor of history and environmental studies at Amherst College, and he is author of the book, The Butterfly Effect. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know was all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So, Edward, can you talk about some of the ways that humans have used bugs to their advantage? You had mentioned, you know, 78 records. and some, Just go through some of those and, and um, very quickly and, and talk about how we've kind of harnessed bugs and put them to work.
1: So this is the thing that got me fascinated in this topic from, from the get-go, um, is that I started to look into three insect commodities that I argued animated world history in many ways, and they're a bit surprising, shellac, uh, cochineal, and silk. I'll talk about the second one in a little depth because your listeners may not have heard of it. Um, Shellac, you may have heard of because people are used to thinking about shellacking their deck or shellacking a piece of furniture, and indeed, that's what it is. It's a substance that's secreted by the karyalaka insect it grows in India and Southeast Asia on fig and acacia trees. And millions of people make their living by harvesting this tiny insect and its, its secretion. The, the mother secretes the shellac to protect her young. And it basically is like sort of sort of bumps of waxy-looking stuff that surrounds a branch on these trees. Then the branch gets cut. Shellac is scraped off, it's melted down, um, then dried and stretched out, and then sold in chips, and those chips are then turned into all sorts of products that you probably don't know you're eating and putting on your body, but as it turns out, they're everywhere. Um, One of the places that that shellac is used is is to coat tablets and, and medicines that go into your stomach. And it's a non-toxic substance that then slows down the digestion of, say, aspirin in your stomach so that the medicine is released slowly in the body. So you're probably eating an insect secretion. Um, It's on fruit from the grocery store. Apples are often made to look more shiny and to hold their water for longer on grocery store shelves by putting shellac on the outside. Um, The next one that I mentioned is cochineal, which... um, it's kind of a strange word, hard to pronounce. I always tell my students the mnemonic device is, can you coach an eel, uh, which you probably can't, <laughs> but that's how you remember how to say it. And it's a red dye that's made from crushing the bodies of female insects that grow on nopal cacti in Latin America. Um, and it's an amazing substance. You'll see it on ingredient lists, on products that you may have on a daily basis, ruby really red grapefruit juice or fruit-on-the-bottom yogurt or a lot of, lot of drink mixers like Campari used to use it to get the deep, dark red color. Um, and it's an insect secretion that was so, so lucrative that it was the second most expensive traded good in the Spanish Empire after only silver. Um, And everyone was after it because it produces this deep, scarlet red that everyone in Europe wanted because for ecclesiastical vestments and royal robes, people wanted that deep red color. It was the color of power. Um, And then lastly, the third that I mentioned is one that may be more familiar to your listeners, Silk, which of course, is, is ubiquitous in high fashion and, uh, and in low fashion in other places, too. I mean, many many traditional costumes in, in countries around the world are, are made from silk, which, of course, is spun by silkworms that are dining on mulberry leaves and then are harvested for their cocoons. So those are examples of sort of products that are around us every day. We might put on a silk tie. We might uh, eat something that has cochineal in it. We might eat shellac even in candy. If your kid goes trick-or-treating on Halloween, they're probably eating candy that's coated in an insect secretion without even knowing it.
0: So I get that insects are used in food for their color or for other reasons, but, but, and people don't even know they're eating insects, but are there places in the world where people like want to eat insects? Like, we want to eat hamburgers and french fries. They want to eat bugs.
1: It's, it's truly amazing. Globally, about 2 billion people consume insects on a regular basis, just as a normal part of their daily diet. And uh, to us in the West, it may seem odd and even revolting, but this is such a normal part of most people's diets. And it turns out that eating insects may also kind of be part of the future because it's so much more efficient to get your protein From insects than it is from other kinds of meat. Um, And that's that's where the sort of the pundits and the prognosticators who are betting on how we're going to feed 9 billion people on the planet by 2050 are thinking insects are going to have to be a big, big part of that. Um, And you see that in the way that the investment is being done. I mean, Bill Gates... Biz Stone, one of the Twitter co-founders, Mark Cuban, the billionaire whom people may know from Shark Tank, they've all put their money into Cricket Meal, um, which is essentially freeze-dried cricket bodies ground up into flour. Um, And if you go on Amazon or any of these websites, you can buy all sorts of different varieties of mixes for everything from brownies and pancakes and cupcakes to, you name it, made out of cricket flour. Um, and the reason for that is it's just really efficient. To produce one pound of crickets, you need a gallon of water and about two cubic feet of space. And let's compare that. If you want to produce one pound of beef in the United States, you need 1,000 gallons of water and two acres of grazing land. And it turns out the pound of crickets has three times the amount of protein, more iron, and more vitamins than the beef. So, if you're thinking about efficiency, this is probably the way that the future of food is going to go.
0: While you were talking, I, I was looking up on Amazon uh, to see cricket flour, and it's it's amazing how many cricket products, cricket, edible crickets, there are that you can buy on Amazon. So it's one thing, though, to, to, to do this for efficiency, but do, are there cultures where people really look forward to like they really want not because it's efficient but because it's delicious they want these insects
1: there's almost no culture on the planet where there isn't a major insect dish at the heart of the cuisine in fact and i'll I'll admit to having tried a few of these and i have some that i like better than others but just to give you some examples uh In Mexico, it's very common to eat chapulines, which are essentially fried crickets, often served with a lot of chili and lime, and they just really taste like crunchy corn chips, basically. Um, And these have become so popular, even in the United States, that at a lot of baseball stadiums, they're now served as part of the the game-time snacks. Safeco Field, where the Seattle Mariners play, now has has featured uh, chapelinus on the menu for baseball fans for several years now. And ESPN did a story on this about the resounding popularity that these little insect snacks have had among baseball fans. Um, In Japan, they eat zazamushi, which are insects that are scooped from riverbeds, insect larvae. Um, in South Africa, it's really common to eat Mopanis, which are Mopane caterpillars. Um, in fact, Malawi's president, Hastings Banda, was known for carrying pocketfuls of these around and handing them out to to children when he was traveling through various villages. He was a rather unsavory character, unfortunately, in terms of his politics, but he was known for handing out insect treats to kids. Um, in Thailand, they eat giant water bugs that are that are often fried up with sauces and are uh, on every menu. And in Korea, you can find um, um, bondegi, which are fried silkworm pupa that are either either boiled and steamed or or um, fried in oil. And they eat them in styrofoam cups with toothpicks, like their little street snacks. And I've tried my share of of all of these. I've I appreciate some more than others, um, <laughs> so I have my own personal biases, but these are these are the mainstays of many cuisines, and it's really not considered at all odd um, to be eating insects as as a centerpiece of your dining habits
0: so. and do they actually like can you taste the insect? Like, oh, that's a silkworm because that tastes like that, like we do chicken or, or or is it just a a vehicle for sauces and things like that?
1: No, you can, you can actually taste the insect in some of these. And I'm sure, you know, many of them are required taste, just the way many foods that that we consider, you know, commonplace in our own diets are certainly acquired tastes. Like, you know, I have I have friends from China who think that cereal with milk is the most odd combination when they come to the U.S. for the first time. And conversely, you know, when I ate mondegi, is was actually in San Francisco's Koreatown, it's a bit like a cross between a shrimp and a peanut. Um, and it's an odd taste at first to get used to because it doesn't feel... Quite right in your mouth. You're sort of figuring out what's going on here, um, and and you know I didn't happen to enjoy that particular combination, but I know some people absolutely love it. So the insect itself often imparts a taste. Sometimes, like with chapulinas it's sort of yeah, you're right. It's a vector for for the sauce and the coatings. But in other cases, I, I've eaten a mother termite actually, and in that case, you could really. The crunch-to-goo ratio wasn't quite right for my palate, and I could certainly taste the insect, but, you know, some people consider it a a culinary delight.
0: (laughs) You know, (laughs) this is a very popular podcast. We have millions of people listen to this podcast, and I bet there isn't a single one of them listening right now who ever heard anyone say the sentence out loud, I've eaten the mother termite, and the crunch-to-goo ratio wasn't quite right. Yuck. All right. Edward Melillo has been my guest. He is a professor of history and environmental studies <laughs> at Amherst College, and he's author of the book The Butterfly Effect, Insects, and the Making of the Modern World. There's a link to that book in the show notes, and uh, thanks for sharing the stories. Appreciate it, Edward.
1: Sure. Thanks so much for interviewing me. This has been a real pleasure chatting with you.
0: I think you would agree that we live in a very consumer-driven society. We want more, we want better, and it's never quite enough. No matter how much money we make or how many toys we have, we still want more. Now, some might say, what's wrong with that? Why not want to constantly do better and have more? whereas others see this as a problem, because if you always want more, you're never satisfied with what you have now. Here to pull the covers back on this interesting quirk of human nature is Paul Hockemeyer. He is a licensed marriage and family therapist who specializes in treating ultra-high net worth individuals and celebrities. And he's author of the book, Fragile Power, Why Having Everything is Never Enough, Lessons from Treating the Wealthy and Famous. Hi, Paul. Welcome to something you should know. Thank you. It's good to be here so there is this idea or this image of you know people wanting more that it's never enough as opposed to people who are satisfied with what they have and they're grateful for what they have but why can't you do both? Why can't you be grateful for what you have but still want more?
2: Well, you certainly can. It's tricky you know that's that's the key that there is nothing wrong with aspiration. Um, There's nothing wrong with wanting to aspire to better. In fact, I think we should all be aspiring to better, but we need to make sure that it's a balance, that we are not um, compulsively in this compulsive hamster wheel of looking for more and more and more. I mean, look, human beings are, we are hunter-gatherers, so we are built to go out into the world and gather nuts and berries and bring them home and build comfortable nests. And, you know, we are living in somewhat of a problem-saturated world, actually, right now with COVID, I think very much a problem-saturated world. Um, but we're very adaptive, and, and it's through our aspirations and it's through our ambition that we have that we will get through this and we will make the world a better place.
0: I think, though, for many people, the idea that you should just be grateful for what you have, that you shouldn't want more, you shouldn't want better, really, I mean, that is the definition of ambition, is to want more and to do better. And when you say, well, you should just be grateful for what you have, I think that turns a lot of people off, because because we want we want to win. That's human nature, to want to win.
2: Well, I agree with you 100%, and I'm not saying be happy with what you have. I think that we should all be striving for better and for more, but I think that we need to focus on the qualitative aspects of our life, peace of mind, serenity, values that, that we have gotten away from in terms of being generous to other people, in terms of being able to store our planet, in terms of uh, being charitable to other human beings, instead of you know, constantly thinking that we need a bigger house or a European sports car or a designer handbag
0: what do we know from the people who have gotten everything you know the billionaires and the millionaires uh, I've heard stories that you know they, they it's never it's never enough for them and and they're kind of the ones we look to of God if I could only have that, then everything would be fine, and you have experience with some of those people, so talk about them
2: well the people who really have made the most out of their wealth and uh, are people who have been able to give back to the community in some significant way. And we are, you know, we're living in a profoundly divided world. The gulf between the haves and the have-nots is extraordinarily wide. And the people who have been able to use their success in a way that gives them the most meaning uh, in their lives is by connecting with people who have less than and people who have been in providing services and resources to help people who are less fortunate to them. So it's this spirit of altruism that, that is a human value, it's a human virtue, it transcends cultures, it transcends times, it transcends race, that people who have been profoundly successful in the material world have been able to translate into happiness and contentedness and peace of mind.
0: But not, not because of their wealth
2: well not exclusively right it's not an all-or-nothing thing we always want to put thing in a binary right so um, but it's it's their ability to integrate their wealth and utilize their wealth in a way that gives their wealth meaning and purpose
0: and where does that meaning and purpose come from if you've if you've spent your whole life focused on the European sports car and the bigger house where do you get a, a meaning and a purpose
2: well, you have to find it. Those are typically the people who I see in my practice who have attained extraordinarily high levels of success, but they feel, oh, my God, like my life has passed me by. I have a terrible relationship with my children. I really don't have any close friends who I can count on um, who who aren't coming to me for anything other than my money and so they experience what's called an existential crisis in their life they have a crisis of meaning and so there they are at the top of the hill with surrounded by all of their toys and they're profoundly alone and they are looking at kind of the last phase of their life and thinking, oh my goodness, I spent all my time and resources to to get to this top of the hill and to stay at the top of the hill and to surround myself by the toys. But I don't have any of what we call the upholstery in life. So the things that provide comfort and meaning and, and direction and purpose. And look, we're, in addition to being hunter-gatherers, we are meaning-making creatures. Uh, out of all the animals, we have the most developed uh, prefrontal cortex, the front of our brain that uh, enables us to make meaning out of our lives. And we all want to make meaning out of our lives, right? We all want to know that we have done something important and significant on uh, on the limited amount of time that we have on this earth.
0: So talk about, I mean, I've... I've remember talking to someone, I don't remember who it was, uh, very successful, well-known, big celebrity successful kind of guy, who said, uh, in in commenting about this whole thing about work-life balance, and he said, you know what, I missed a lot of baseball games, Little League games. I didn't go to all the track meets. I did work weekends, and I don't regret a minute of it that my meaning came from my work, I loved what I did, and this idea that that if you feel that way, there's something wrong with you, uh, he said, I believe is baloney.
2: Mm -hmm. Good for him. He certainly has found meaning and purpose in his life and is contented with his life. Look, there isn't a, you know, 100% fits all This is for everybody, right? I mean, we have to create meaning individually in our lives, and we do get into trouble when we look to other kind of dominant cultural messages to tell us who we should be and how we should be happy so kudos to the person who you talk to who you know devoted his resources in a way that gave him the most meaning and purpose in his life um... but again it's it's not for everybody and you know we need to get away from trying to put everybody in this one-size-fits-all you know we have to recognize what's important to us in our lives, um, and then pursue those goals. And what what we have gotten into, I'm afraid, particularly with with the advent of say reality television and the internet, um, is looking at veneers and looking at the veneers of success and thinking that those are the things that we are that are going to give us. Uh, pleasure and happiness, but but life isn't not meant to be lived by observing others. It's meant to be a, a process that we engage in in ourselves and experiment with, and 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 find our own path and find our own direction.
0: But there's always been that curiosity of what's behind the curtain of. You know you know what goes on you know in the royal family the the stars of Hollywood and more recently there's been all these these reality shows about the reality stars and 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 movie stars and how they live their life and wouldn't it be nice? It almost seems human nature to want to view that and maybe secretly aspire to that
2: it is a hundred percent and if you look at our our worship of celebrity it transcends times it transcends cultures. We can go back to the Greek gods. they were our first celebrities right those were those were the larger than life. Figures who enabled us to find meaning and purpose and direction in our lives, and and we get that from uh, from 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 looking at celebrities. And celebrities give us an extraordinary escape from from the challenges of our own particular life. They give us role models to to aspire to. And as you mentioned quite early in our conversation, there's nothing wrong with aspiration, and we need to be aspirational, and we need to be striving. For better and and just celebrities enable us to do that so there's an element of escape there's an element of, of hope right so that we think that you know maybe one day we can have those particular lives um, and it enables us to keep striving for something better um, and human beings are we are hierarchical we like to arrange ourselves in hierarchies and we like to be led by charismatic leader so it's it's hardwired into our dna um and it appeals very much to our sense of place and security and how we make meaning in our world
0: but then when those things don't happen when you don't get the the mansion in beverly hills and you don't get the you know the billion dollar bank account is is that a problem, or do pe- people just adjust, or say, "Well, you know, I missed that one, but that's okay. Life's good." Or, I mean, is is all this aspiration leading to a big letdown?
2: Can be if you haven't, if, they, if you've been very um, singularly focused, if you haven't developed quality relationships in your life that give your life. The upholstery and give your life the comfort and give your life the meaning so again it's you know it 's a balance we kind of always have to go back to these these things are these are not new right These are not new concepts that we need to have balance in our life that yes, we need to be striving for better, and yes, we need to 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 appreciate what we have in our present and most importantly, we need to have quality connections with other human beings. That, that, that we feel proud of and that give our life meanings. If you typically ask parents, for instance, what are you most proud of? It's their children. Um, you know, being a parent is extraordinarily gratifying. So um, maybe there are people who would say, my BMW or my, uh, my handbag. Um, but those people are going to be the exception as opposed to the rule.
0: But again, it, it, you can have all those friends and relationships and have a BMW as well. It's not either or.
2: Exactly. And I am i don't think I'm saying that. If, I, if, if I'm saying that to you, um, I'm not saying the right thing, that I agree with you 100%, that it's a balance, it's a titration.
0: There is that. I mean, I think everybody has at some point in their life, if they're old enough, you know, taken the limo gone to that real exclusive restaurant stayed in the really fancy hotel and it's it's pretty nice you know that you get treated really really well and you feel very special and you know it's kind of hard to go back to your old life the next day when you've had that little taste of glamour But some people go back to life and everything's fine, but I I guess it's almost that taste is very, very tempting.
2: It's seductive and it's intoxicating and it can be an addictive process. So when we go to a fancy restaurant, we're treated like royalty, right? Because we're paying a lot of money and that taps into something very primal in us as human beings, which is this need to be seen and validated by other human beings because we are relational creatures and so when we're validated and seen as special boy that taps very much into our primal brain and shoots us full of all sorts of wonderful hormones dopamine oxytocin and um it certainly elevates us and some people can get addicted to that um and they just kind of want they want more and more and more of it and they strive and strive and strive and become very singularly focused
0: on doing that. I imagine that social media doesn't help this at all because everybody's wanting to put on a good face and everybody wants to let everybody know how great they are and successful they are and how wonderful this thing is that happened to me recently. And, and when you preoccupy yourself with putting on that face, I, I, I imagine that contributes to this whole problem.
2: Very much so. It's that focus on veneer, and then social media is very tied to numbers, right? So I have an Instagram account, and I have 1,000 people who follow me. Well, that's not enough because uh, Khloe Kardashian has 2.5 million, and so there's this you know, chronic need to, to to determine one's self-worth, by how many how many likes you have, or how many people are following you, and. Um that becomes very much a slippery slope, doesn't it? Because then you are tied to what we just talked about, which is this concept of tolerance, right? So if I have a thousand followers on my Instagram account, that's not enough. I need to have five thousand and then I need to have thirty thousand and then, if I don't get if I post something and I only get a hundred likes, then I have a sense of withdrawal because well, wait a minute, last week I posted something and I had five hundred likes, so again, it's tying one's sense of self and one's validity to these external markers of, of success.
0: So explain what it means to have everything, since you work with high net worth individuals and celebrities who seemingly have everything. And if you have everything, well, that implies that you have everything. So, But when you do have everything, how does it look from there?
2: Well, there's a fragility that happens with people who have attained extraordinary levels of power so that we we don't fully appreciate the vulnerability where they live in. And, you know, failure is different than success because in failure... We can constantly live in hope, right? We can constantly live in hope that tomorrow will be a different day and we can keep tweaking ourselves and getting it better and finally achieve the levels of success that we want. When we live in a place of extraordinary success, we live in constant fear that we're, we're, we're going to fall off our perch or the success that we have is not sustainable. So, so it's two very different paradigms to live in 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 failure we can we can live in hope and in extraordinary success. we tend to live in fear that we're going to lose what we have and in that place of fear, there's the fragility that underlines the power that that we present to the world
0: It's hard to see that, I think, for people that if you have you know hundreds of millions of dollars, a billion dollars in the bank how you could ever worry about falling off your perch because uh, you couldn't spend it fast enough.
2: That's right. Yeah, and so again, the answer is not sort of in the quantitative aspect. It's not in the dollars. It's in the quality of the relationships that you have with other human beings.
0: Well, in a way, it's weirdly comforting to know that having everything isn't everything. It's not all it's cracked up to be, and... And to strive to have everything, to have all the toys and the money, it may be good, but, but there are other things that are just as important that need your attention as well. Paul Hockemeyer has been my guest. He's a licensed marriage and family therapist who specializes in treating high-net-worth individuals and celebrities, and he's author of the book, Fragile Power, Why Having Everything is Never Enough. And there's a link to that book in the show notes. Thank you for coming on, Paul. It is a universal frustration, I think, to try to get that last little bit of whatever it is out of the bottle. Skin lotion, mustard, ketchup. It's always tough to get that last little bit. Consumer Reports did a test, and here's what they found. Skin lotion is the worst. That's because you can leave up to one-fifth of the entire contents of the bottle inaccessible because the lotion sticks to the side of the container. The remedy is to add a little bit of water and shake or carefully cut open the container and scoop it out. Mustard and ketchup are also tough, and again, the answer is to just add a little water. For toothpaste, it turns out that a toothpaste squeezer can be effective and will eventually, <laughs> I'm not sure how long, but eventually it will pay for itself ...in the amount of toothpaste that you save and then therefore don't have to buy. Consumer Reports also measured whether products actually pack the amount of product in the container that they claim to. And it turns out they do. And that is something you should know. I love ratings and reviews and we've been getting some very nice ones lately. Please feel free to add yours to the list and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to this podcast...